And please take your Bibles and turn to Acts 21. Acts chapter 21, the reading verses 1 through 16 today. We continue in our reading through Luke's sequel, The Acts of the Apostle, written by the author of the Gospel of Luke. Let us pray. Father, now upon the public reading of Scripture, upon the preaching of your word, we pray that your sheep would recognize your voice speaking to them according to the means that you have ordained, by which you come to us in grace and regenerate and reform and renew us in the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would measure out to us, not according to our deserving, not according even to our preparation. Though we confess, Lord, we wish we had prepared more. We have not hungered as we ought for your word. But Lord, we pray now as your dear children that you would give to us by the measure of your grace a good feasting upon the meat and the marrow of your word. Grant our children, our sons, our daughters to hear the voice of the master, and may we all, by the power of your spirit, recognize your authority therein, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 21. Verse 1. And when we had departed from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the slip, the ship, was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, 
but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is God's word. Please be seated. Beloved, to the best of our knowledge, a chain of islands in the South Pacific, once known as the New Hebrides, had no Christian influence before John Williams and James Harris landed there in 1839. Williams and Harris were evangelists with the London Missionary Society. They were sent to advance the kingdom of God by proclaiming the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. The the same thing Apple Valley Presbyterian Church is here to do. Both of those men would be killed and eaten by cannibals by the end of the first week of their arrival on that beautiful island known today as Vanatua. And you can ask Dunk Fonts about Vanatua. He has been there several times. 48 years later, 48 years later, another missionary to those same islands wrote about the death of Williams and Harris. Here's what he said. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole creation world, the whole Christian world, that he claimed these islands as his own. Hear it again. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. John G. Patton wrote those words. In the 1850s, John Patton was having a fruitful ministry in Scotland. He was distributing gospel tracts. He was teaching in a school. He was a city missionary in the worst parts of Glasgow. But John became persuaded that he too must bring the gospel to the New Hebrides. In March of 1858, he was ordained to do so by the Reformed Presbyterian Church. A month later, he married Mary Ann Robeson. Fourteen days after that, they sailed with their assistant, Joseph Copeland, to the South Pacific. Now, John's friends did not want him to go, just like Paul's friends did not want him to go to Jerusalem. All the Christians in Scotland knew the ugly way that Williams and Harris had died. Writing years later, Patton said, quote, the opposition was so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or only some headstrong wish of my own. This caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer. In one confrontation before he left, a Mr. Dixon yelled at Patton, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Patton replied, 
Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and you are soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. On November 5th, 1858, the Patons landed on the islands of New Hebrides. On February 12th, 1859, just a few months later, a baby was born to them, whom they named after Mary's father. Three weeks later, on March 3rd, Mary died. Two weeks later, on March 20th, their baby son died. John Patton was heartbroken by these losses. He said he was afflicted with the deepest of loneliness. With his own hands, he dug two graves in the beach, and for days he slept over those buried bodies to protect them from the cannibals. He stayed for over 30 years. There is, of course, much more to the story. Indeed, much eternal life comes to those islands through death. But how is it that men like John Patton keep emerging in the historical record of the Church of Jesus Christ? How is it that this production of martyrs seems to never end? Patton? Polycarp, Stams, Staines, Burnham, Stephen the Deacon in chapter 7, and the OPC's own daughter, our first martyr, Anna Stickwerda. Where do these people come from in the Church of Jesus Christ? I have just listed a fraction of a fraction. Beloved, saints like Patton emerge because their lives were squared up, placed like a well-placed brick on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, whose lives themselves were squared up and placed like a well-placed brick upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ himself. That's where they come from. And this cornerstone is a peculiar cornerstone. It is the stone the builders rejected. It is the stone of stumbling. It is the rock of offense. Why? Because he was not ashamed of suffering. In fact, this rock has been placed as cornerstone by God on which he now builds his kingdom because this rock was not ashamed to be struck by the judgments owed to sinful men and women. This is why his own people rejected him. Because they didn't want a suffering cornerstone. They wanted an earthly glory, shiny marble mountain. He said, no. There's no kingdom that can be built by the stuff of a fallen race of men in a cursed land. Jesus was stricken in the place of his people. For this he was not ashamed. 
to be so stricken. And now on the death of Jesus, God is building his kingdom of salvation across time and throughout the world. Therefore, therefore, the peculiar shape and strength of the cornerstone now passes into the lives of his apostles and then into the lives of those in fellowship with his apostles, the church. What is then the peculiar shape and peculiar strength that we all share because of the cornerstone? It is being unashamed to suffer for sinners. Jesus is the pioneer in this. We are pilgrim followers. He is shepherd. We are sheep. He does not give us power and wisdom so that we can be ashamed that we lose our sons and daughters to bring the gospel to sinners. That is not the power and wisdom he gives us. He gives us the power and wisdom of the cross. Now, the Christian, of of course, is ashamed of sin. But the Christian is not ashamed to suffer for sinners, nor at the hands of sinners. Do not resist the one who is evil, Jesus said in Matthew 5. I like to take that statement out of context sometimes and ask people like Jay Leno on the street interview, would you ever say this? Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5. The only wisdom and power the risen Christ gives to his church is a wisdom and power to not be ashamed that we are going to a hostile city like Jerusalem to bring the good news of salvation to sinners who will kill us. The Christian is not ashamed to suffer for sinners. Christ crucified is the cornerstone of this principle, of this wisdom, of this power in the church. And therefore, the risen Christ will see to it that there always remains a shadow of death in his church. He will see to it. Always a readiness to die. Always a readiness to suffer. Always a readiness to take up your cross. A readiness to deny ourselves. A readiness to follow Jesus who is leading us through death, not around it, into the resurrection life of glory. He will not let his church find its identity in earthly glory. So he's about to bury one of his best men the Apostle Paul. He will not let his church find its identity in an earthly glory. Heavenly glory, yes. Resurrection glory, yes. His glory is that which he constantly wills for his church to be dressed in. And so for that reason, we must always be dying to the world and living in the risen Christ. And that calling, as you know, is first signified to you in your baptism. Die under the waters of judgment. Rise into the new life of resurrection. Well, this is what we see in our reading this morning. 
Paul has come to the end of his three missionary journeys. In our short 16-verse reading, Paul has just traveled by boat eastward for almost 600 miles, and he's going to the hostile city that killed his master, Jerusalem. Now, like his savior before him, Paul goes to Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and will kill the apostle. And Paul has it on very good authority as he moves toward this den of wolves and robbers. He has it on very good authority that he will be bound and likely die by what happens in that city. Which brings us to a very key feature of our text this morning. You notice this, I'm sure. Paul keeps hearing by divine revelation, by the Holy Spirit, that a shadow of death awaits him in Jerusalem. He hears it and sees it from Agabus the prophet, verse 11. This is the same Agabus who earlier, and now a couple decades earlier, predicted a famine in Jerusalem. He also hears about this shadow of death in Jerusalem from the prophets in the church at Tyre, verse 4. And 500 miles earlier, back west in the harbor of Miletus, Paul told us the Spirit even confirmed directly to him that things will not go well in Jerusalem for him. This is Acts 20, verse 22 and 23. Even so, with all this revelation about what is coming, Paul continues to advance toward Jerusalem. He is unstoppable. The disciples at Tyre were telling him not to do it. The disciples in Philip's house urged him not to go. But Paul keeps going towards the lion's den, fully aware of the danger. And beloved... It is by this that the church learns again something profound about the kingdom of Jesus. That avoiding danger is not the way the church discovers God's will. Write it down, put it on a sandwich board, walk it in front of your nearest prosperity gospel church. Avoiding danger is not how the church discovers God's will. The will of God is not always to be found in the choice that is most pleasant, most comfortable, least costly, most prosperous, most triumphant, most glorious. The will of God is sometimes you in the mouth of a cannibal, and Christ in his worth proclaimed The will of God for the whole church of God is for us to always be under a shadow of death. Now, now don't look at your, at your watch and say, how did I get in a place that talks like this? I must have come to the wrong building today. I meant to go to Home Depot. <laughs> Beloved, this is Christianity. This is Christ. This world offers you no salvation. You have been saved for the world to come. 
and he has already set it in your heart. The will of God for the church of God is for us always to be under a shadow of death. Listen, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a species of death. Blessed are those who mourn. That is a species of death. Blessed are the meek. That is a species of death. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is a species of death. In Christ, we are now dead to the world and its passions. In Christ, we are now dead to sin and its lust. In Christ, we are now dead to self and its conceits. But death is not the purpose of death. And this is important. Death is not the purpose of death. Death in this world in union with Christ, is for life in the power of his resurrection forever. Here's how one pastor explained it so well. Jesus is conforming us to his cruciform likeness so that we see ourselves exclusively in his resurrection reflection. Do not think, beloved, that the interest of him who wore a crown of thorns and went to a bloody cross naked to redeem you from this corrupt world. Do not think for a minute that what he wants for you is to be on top in this world. This world is opposed to everything that he was for. That's why after his resurrection, he didn't build a mansion in Colorado Springs or take over the White House. Back to our pastor friend. He is conforming us to his cruciform likeness so that we see ourselves exclusively in his resurrection reflection. This is Christian growth. To become in our weakness more and more dependent on his strength. To seek in our woundedness more and more of his healing life. When you begin to confess your limitations and in your weaknesses and your fear even, of this corrupt world, then you begin to see that this world offers you no solace against those things. The risen Christ alone should be your North Star, your identity, your DNA, resurrection in the age to come is stamped on your heart by the Spirit so that you can let go of clinging to life in this world. And it's that letting go that will even allow you to step deeper into the basic order of obedience, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, there's something very interesting in our passage. The Holy Spirit gives several early church prophets the revelation of Paul's coming troubles in Jerusalem. I pointed this out in verse 4 and in verse 11. But the Spirit did not tell those prophets whether or not Paul should therefore go to Jerusalem. He told them that he was going to be greatly harmed in Jerusalem, and so the prophets announced that. They went on, though, to urge Paul not to go. That is from them, not from the Spirit. 
The Spirit only showed them what will happen when Paul gets there. They are the ones who don't want him to go. But the Spirit did tell one prophet that Paul must go to Jerusalem. And that prophet was Paul himself. In Acts 20, verse 22, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So on one hand, this is, this is quite important, so try to track with me. So on one hand, the Spirit gives several unnamed prophets in Tyre and Caesarea and one named, Agabus. The Spirit gives several unnamed prophets knowledge of the trouble coming in Jerusalem to Paul if he goes. But the Spirit only gives to Paul the knowledge that he must go to Jerusalem. Everyone else tells him not to go. Why has the Lord set things up this way? He has done this to further establish the distinct authority of Paul as apostle and prophet of Jesus Christ. In fact, the only way you could hear all of the prophets on this matter and still look Paul in the eye and say, you should go, but it will hurt you. The only way you could say that after hearing all of these prophets is if you carefully listen to Paul. And that's the point. The Lord is establishing the authority of Paul even above the prophets, not because the Lord gave them false information, but he gave only Paul the complete information. So even this is helping the church see whose writings we will sit at the feet of after this era of the Acts of the Apostles is over. We will sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul and Peter as the unnamed prophets. God bless them. He did. But as the unnamed prophets fade away, as this miraculous age comes into a canonical age, meaning the scriptures are completed. But there's a greater point than just that. At least I think there is. Maybe I'm the only one, but let's see. Here is the great point. Christ is working through Paul to renew in the church that the cross, the shadow of death, is the foundational principle of wisdom and power in the church. Nothing else. Because of Christ, we are not ashamed to suffer for sinners or at the hands of sinners, and the Lord is going to teach us it through the very life and death of one of his top men, the Apostle Paul. And so this is contrary to our own instincts. The prophets of Tyre, the prophets of Caesarea, Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. Paul does not get heated with them, but he certainly does correct them, doesn't he? And he does it in the sweetest way. He says, you're breaking my heart, verse 13. But you shouldn't be talking the way you are. You should be encouraging me with the hope and promise of the resurrection. You should be building me up in the knowledge that Jesus went this very same way, down the Via Della Rosa, 
and how privileged I am. You should be telling me to follow in the footsteps of my master in the hostile city. And that I too shall be raised, not three days after I am dead, but on the final day. Now I do want to look a little bit more at verses 12 and 13. Let me read those two again. When we heard this, Luke is including himself now, that's why he's using the we. When we heard this, this bad news about what's coming in Jerusalem, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul has found there is something better than life. It is to use up his life for Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ. That is better than living a long life and writing out your last check at 98 where you use the last 20 bucks from your 401k and then you die. This is way better. Paul is enamored with the Lord Jesus. He is smitten by the Lord Jesus. He is ravished by the Lord Jesus. He is inconsolable with the goodness and the beauty and the worth of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the most important being, person, thing that Paul could ever want to study and talk about and give his life to. Let me just tell you, and it will take faith to believe what I'm about to say. You will never find on a computer, in a national park, in a European vacation. You will never find in 50 years of unlimited funds and unlimited time of home improvements using every YouTube video HGTV produced, you will never find in any of those things something as fascinating and filling to your soul as the Lord Jesus. Raise your hand if you're ready to give your life for HGTV. Raise your hand if you're ready to give your life for Twitter. Okay. Raise your hand if you're ready to give your life for 30 years of absolute leisure and unlimited resources to enjoy it. 30 years Nothing compared to the infinite one, the eternal son, the everlasting kingdom and king. Beloved, your soul will not know its true shape and potential until you begin to become head over heels enamored and affected with the Lord Jesus. Only he summons the soul to its true height. Paul Paul finds giving up his life for the Lord Jesus as a little thing, for he has been given so much from this Jesus who has given his life for him. Now, I have to show you something, because it really helps us not make a mistake. 
Look what Paul says in verse 13. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die. Paul is ready for both the lesser suffering and the greater suffering. He's ready to stand under the shadow of death to continue to walk in it, whatever weight it brings upon his shoulders. The lesser weight, prison, imprisonment, or the greater weight, physical death. Paul is ready. And this is where we need to avoid a mistake. It is true that never will everyone in this room be called to lose their life as gospel missionaries. That is true. But it is also true that we are all called to lose our lives for the lesser shadow of death. Paul's ready for either the lesser or the greater. For you and me, beloved, this means we are ready to suffer in new ways as we become newly enamored with the Lord Jesus. We are ready to suffer in new ways by even ordinary obedience. You're doing it right now today. There's got to be something you could be doing if you were home. Some of you could probably be at home making money right now, or at least letting your body recover some strength from all the things you did yesterday or the last week. Right now, even assembling together, you are participating under the shadow of death that we are all called to participate in. We tasted this shadow as a congregation in 2016. In December of that year, we sent 27 communicant members. I strike that, 27 members down to our church plant in Oshkosh. This place was in funeral mode for the next several months. We were blue. It was a good time to start listening to jazz. We were a blue congregation. There was palpable sorrow in this room because there were empty spots and we were not going to regularly see those people again. We're sending away a dear family, God willing, at the end of this year, the Robbins family. We're going to be blue. Our heart's going to break a little bit. Beloved, we are never called to step out of that shadow and say, I want sunlight all the time. This is not a world of sunlight. This is the world of darkness. But people living in darkness have seen a great light in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for sinners. And he has gone to our home. That's when we shall be at rest. And the shadow of death shall be off of us. But it must be on us now. You know why? Because we are weak creatures. And our faith is growing, and it's not fully grown. We want as Sam Rutherford said, we want two summers in every year. We want two heavens, one here below and one above. 
we would turn away from Christ. So the Lord under in this age puts the shadow of death upon us where we will even lose some of our best men to the cross. So I urge you and even warn you, one of the most common reasons for disobedience against ordinary commands of the Christian life, joining a church, deepening our fellowship and love in the church, attending church, speaking tenderly, wisely, patiently to all under our care, working hard. One of the most common reasons we retreat from ordinary obedience is because we refuse to suffer. We, for, we see the kind of suffering it would take for us to obey and live a robust, ordinary Christian life. We see it and we say, no. And we take the sword and we begin to dismember that ordinary scripture picture of the Christian. Because we're trying to hang on to our life. Beloved, the Lord is summoning you, even through the ordinary commands of obedience, to taste the power of the resurrection. That's what he wants to give to you. He says you taste it by coming down the narrow way where you must lay off many things you would like to keep. My time, my money, my peace, my quiet. Jesus says, really? <laughs> he who was rich beyond all splendor for our sakes became poor that we who are poor might become rich. It is not riches that those commandments are keeping you from. <clears throat> so, when John Patton left, almost 40 years later, the New Hebride Islands, he said that he could hear church bells from several locations ringing. The cannibals had become Christians. I want to encourage parents on some matter, because what do we see in our text today? When Paul leaves Tyre after just, after just seven days, everybody in the church, men, women, and children, they all follow him down to the beach. They kneel down on the beach and pray and say farewell to one another. The whole body of Christ, the men, the women, and the children, are to be discipled that the wisdom and power of God is under the shadow of death. Because by that we see the glory of the resurrection. If the, if the glory we're looking for is on earth, we will not be in heaven. But we need our sight of the glory in heaven to be strengthened. And here's what I would strongly encourage parents with children. Put in your hands, their hands, put in your children's ears by maybe evening reading. Get to them the stories of men and women like John G. Patton 
the stams, gram stains, polycarp. Get in their heads, hearts, and hands the stories of those who were ready for imprisonment and even death for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciple your children in the shadow of death. It is the wisdom and the power of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Get them the biographies of these missionaries who gave their lives. And maybe one or two of them will become missionaries. But perhaps all of them will become quite equipped by faith to give up what must be given up to follow him who gave up all to bring us home. Let us pray. Father, bless the preaching of your word to all of us. According to your great grace, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and the authority that was conferred upon him, and that with that great authority as distinguished among all prophets even, he was called to lay down his life, as we shall see in the last act of this report from Luke. Father, we pray that we would be ready for the lesser as well as the greater shadows of death, and that we would not despise them when they come near to us in a fresh way, but that by the power of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, we would see them for what they are, a summons, a summons of the one who loves us most, to be dressed afresh in the power and hope of his resurrection and the age to come. And then we shall be some earthly good, for we will be so heavenly-minded, we cannot be compromised or bought by the glories of a fading world under judgment. We thank you for picking us out of the fire, putting the righteousness of your Son upon us, and setting yourself up in our hearts by your spirit so that we might recognize your voice. Lead us, shepherd. Lead us. Grant us the will and grace to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.